Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 is where we'll be centering our thoughts and our study in this part of our worship. Mark chapter 10. We have visitors here with us, and we want to say welcome to you. Thank you for being here, and we are happy that you're here with us. We'd love to get to know you better, and we're thankful that you've made the choice to be here with us. We want you to know that you're welcome, and if there's something we can do to help you, questions you have, or anything that we can offer, we'd love to know about that. So please just let us know about that. I want to remind you before, uh, while I'm up here and talking, but before I get into the the preaching part, uh, just to be mindful of the fact that over the next few days and weeks, uh, we have a number of our young people who are starting to school and also transitioning into different parts of their academic careers. We have several who are going off to college. Uh, We have others who, I know that all the schools are having different uh, uh, protocols and things because we live in a strange time at the moment, but uh, be mindful of them and uh, mindful of their parents and uh, be praying about all of that. If you don't mind, be thoughtful of our young people. We are proud of our young people, especially those who are leaving us. Uh, We want you to know how glad we are that You call this place and this group home, uh, and we hope for good things for you in the future. But uh, be thinking about them in coming days here. Mark chapter 10 and verse 42 is where I want to begin. Mark 10, 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is in the wake of when James and John come to Jesus lobbying for the right and left hands in the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't promise them positions like those because that's not really what leadership in the kingdom of God is going to look like. It's not going to look like who's in charge, who's the boss, who's right and left hand. But the other disciples, when they hear what James and John have done, verse 41 says, they began to be indignant. They were angry about that. And so Jesus gets the whole group together. Come on, guys, let's talk about this. And he says, you need to understand that this idea of grabbing for power, this idea of wanting to be in charge of everybody else, that's the way the Gentiles work. And he says specifically, that's not the way you're going to be. And I believe that Jesus could be talking to our time because our time is very similar to what he describes the Gentiles doing in their time. That is, in our time, the focus in our culture is on leadership that is about asserting ourselves, getting to the top of the heap. Whether we're talking about business or entertainment or media or politics, the question becomes, who has the most followers? Who has the most influence? Who has the most power? Those people are the leaders. They are the ones to be respected and listened to and obeyed. And Jesus says, please notice it, it shall not be so among you. My people, my disciples will be different. Well, we've been talking this year about our theme of house rules. And we've built a pretty strong foundation. What we're doing with this series is we're talking about what Christian homes should look like and specifically what Christian families should be teaching and practicing. And a lot of these lessons, I hope you've noticed as we've gone through the year, they're both lessons for the home and also just general Christian principles about how Christians should be living. So even if you're not currently at home or you don't have kids or you're not married or something like that, these are still things that apply to all of us. 
And so we've talked about a lot of these things. Home is a safe place. We respect each other. We tell the truth. We speak with love. No gossip allowed. We take responsibility. And then last month, we deal with our problems. And so what I want to do is take this power that resides in the fact that in a home, we can really drill in lessons and live lessons and become a different kind of person and raise different kinds of people. And I want to apply it to what Jesus says here. And I want us to talk about how we lead by serving. So let's take that and think about how in a home, servant leadership would look and show up. How can we teach it? How can we live it? So what I want to say first is that at home, we learn the virtue of service. When Jesus talks to power-hungry people, this is what he says. He says, we need to turn that ambition, that lust for power, and twist it so that it now becomes directed at service. Look again at verse 43, Mark 10 and verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, so you got that desire to be great, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So true greatness is found in service, Jesus says. The one who wants to serve, uh, who wants to be first, must be slave of everyone. The one who wants to be great must be a slave, a servant. And at the forefront of that is Jesus, of course, whose whole mission was about coming to earth to serve other people. Now that all sounds good. But frankly, I wonder if we believe it. You see, we don't really believe that the greatest people are servants. Now, we give some lip service to the Mother Teresas of the world, you know, the people who devote their lives to serving people. But we actually emulate the other kind of person, the people who are seeking money and power and influence at any cost. And the people that we really admire, the ones that we talk about, the ones that we watch our TV shows about, those are the people, not who go around serving other people, it's the people who go around being served. Those are the people we are drawn to. So if we are going to stem the tide of this kind of incredible selfishness and self-promotion and self-fixation, it's going to have to happen here. We have to establish the virtue of service in our homes. This is a good thing that this is worth our time and energy, that it's not something we do to get ahead, that we do not serve because there's some tangible benefit we get from it, not because it makes all our relationships better, not that it's the secret to some kind of success. It is because it is good to serve. And I want to break that down into a few different categories here. So first of all, the virtue of service goes a little something like this. We give instead of getting. That's what it means to serve. Serving is about you giving so that you have less and somebody else has more, which is the exact opposite of the way we are trained to think and live. So this is Paul quoting Jesus. He says, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So service has that posture at its heart. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's better to give instead of getting. That even though you may feel like you have less when you give, you actually are gaining something that it is better to have. There is a blessing there. So I don't think I need to tell you that there is a little bit of an instinctual barrier there. I'm thinking particularly of parents with kids. And how does the parent-child relationship go? 
Well, it goes like this. When the child comes into the world, the child can give nothing and can only receive. And so parents have to give and give and give and give and give. And the, the child, as the child gains consciousness, becomes aware of the fact that, hey, all I do is get. I get and I get and I get and I get. And they like to get. It's nice to get instead of giving. And then as they get a little bit older, you, you see that pattern. When there's something they want, they know who to turn to. Parents can get things that children can't get for themselves. So, so parents, maybe even grandparents, they become the key to me getting the things that I want to get. And that's what life becomes about, and that's what relationships become about. And so there has to be a conscious effort, parents, grandparents, to transition children out of getting mode into giving mode. To say, as Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So we need to teach and show our children a different perspective. Otherwise, they will just grow up continually expecting to always get. And that getting is really the key to happiness. And there is also a cultural barrier here. That is that we, we tend to become, we, we tend to feel entitled to a certain number of things. And if we see someone else having something, then we want what they want. And so whatever everybody else has, that's what I should have. That's what I should get. So we've got our phones and our Netflix and our free time and our cars and our spending money. I mean, after all, my friend has it. Somebody else has it. And so I expect to get without ever thinking about needing to give. In our homes, there is value in teaching the principle of giving instead of getting. Second, we show love and we don't just talk about it. I want you to go with me over to James chapter 2. Leave your marker here. We'll come back to Mark 10 in a moment. Let's go over to James chapter 2. We need to teach in our homes and practice in our homes that love is not just words. James 2 and verse 14. James says, James 2, 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now please understand, the primary thrust of James's words here is about faith and works. It's about the fact that if we say we have faith, but we don't do anything with our faith, then that faith is dead. But notice the example that he gives, that there is someone who is in need. They're poorly clothed and they're lacking in daily food. There is a point at which all the well wishes in the world are not doing any good because your words don't meet the need. So you can say you love them and you can say you care about them and you can say you want to serve, but there comes a point where the rubber has to meet the road. And we have to say, am I really going to do it or not? James, uh, John, I'm sorry, talks about in 1 John 3 that if we see our brother and sister in need and we shut up our heart from them, how does the love of God abide in him? Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That love is not just something we talk about. We don't just say, I love you. We also do things. Now that's hard. I understand, and I want you to hear me, all families, every single family in the world has to make decisions 
about when we serve and how we serve. And there are a lot of factors that go into those decisions. Do we have the time to do it? Do we have the energy to do it? Is it safe to do it? Are these people, is this need legitimate? Is there something that we need to consider beyond just the need? All of those things have to go into the decision-making of all families. However, there must be a point where we decide, yes, we're actually going to do something instead of just talking about something. Love needs to be more than talk so that our kids and our spouses and our neighbors and our brothers and sisters actually see it. At home, we learn the virtue of service, and this is a way I would describe the virtue of service. We look for opportunities to do good. As I prepared this study, I just, this just jumped out at me. How often New Testament writers describe Christian living as those two words, do good, do good. So I want to show you those for just a moment here on the board. Uh, Luke 6, 35, Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So Jesus says, look for opportunities to do good even to people who aren't doing good to you. Romans 12, verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do it? They do evil, we do them good back. When he is being ugly, I feed him, I give him something to drink, and I overcome his evil by doing good. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I mean, it's a great verse to put on your uh, mirror, places where you're going to see it. Always seek to do good. And then Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So let me give you a contrast here. We live in a world full of people who are deeply upset, hurt, angry. They lash out. Sometimes they hurt us. We live in a divided nation. We live in an anxious nation. And the focus of these passages that we have just read is that we cannot allow the tone of our world to corrupt us and keep us from doing good. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So the question is, and the question we need to be teaching in our homes, what am I doing today that is good? How in my interactions with other people, in my conversations, am I doing good? What can I at the end of my day look back on and say, that was a good thing I did today? We look for opportunities to do good just because it's good. Not because we win any points. Not because we gain followers. Because good is good to do. That is the virtue of service. So if we learn the virtue of service at home, then we cannot start too early in teaching and practicing service in our homes. Our homes should be places where we work together toward a common goal. We learn to serve together. Let me give you a few examples of that and how service can be real in our homes. 
It means that we are willing to open up our homes and let other people in to our private spaces, the places where we live life, and say, this is a place where you are also welcome. And we're going to do that together because everybody's got to be involved in some way. Everybody in the house is going to be involved when someone is in our house. And so we offer together our time and energy and effort. We think together about other people and what they are going through. We think about ways to encourage and help other people. And we ask the question, how can we do good? Maybe we talk to our kids about it specifically. What did you do today that was good? How can we do something good today? And so we serve others, not because we get paid to, not because they expect us to, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a desire to do good. We take turns helping each other. We want to give each other a break in the home. We're thankful and we appreciate and we say thank you when others make sacrifices for us and we make sacrifices for them in return. I want to say it this way too. We talked a minute ago about the idea of entitlement and it seems to me that we need to be able to, in in the home, transition our children out of this idea that Johnny has one, I want one too. That this isn't fair and everything being about fairness because fairness is not really the posture of service, is it? Service is by definition unfair. I am giving you something that you don't deserve not to get anything in return, just to give, just to serve. And so we need to be teaching our children, no, this is about you can have that. I want to give that to you. Instead of I want mine, I want you to have what you need. So parents are going to lead the way here. And we're going to show by how we live and what we're saying and what we're doing that our kids are going to see us serving them and serving each other and serving in the church and serving in the community. They're going to see service at home. Second thing, at home we learn the nature of real leadership. Let's go back to Mark 10. The nature of real leadership. So Jesus, when he talks about uh, contrasting this desire for glory and power with service, this is what he says. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says, he leads. He is Lord and Master, and yet he leads by serving. Specifically, that means Jesus never leads by throwing his weight around and demanding his way. He leads by serving. And I think... I think that even as we read that verse, we have some lingering doubts about it. Because it just sounds, well, yeah, servant leadership sounds so nice, but there is a part of us that wonders, can people really lead like that? Is that a real thing? I mean, yeah, Jesus, but I mean, he's Jesus, right? That sounds way different than the way our world actually works. So could somebody really lead like that in a business? or really lead like that as an elder, or really lead like that as president? Doesn't it make you wonder? It seems to me then that the best test case of Jesus' words is going to happen in the home, where we're going to try it as leaders in the home, and our kids are going to see it as followers in the home. So I want to give you a couple of ideas about real leadership. The first is that real leadership serves. Let's go to John chapter 13. John 13.
John 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 13, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know all these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work washing the feet of the disciples. And it's interesting, he does not say, hey, Peter, wash everybody's feet. Would that be leadership? Yeah, it would be leadership. I mean, he's the leader. He's telling Peter what to do. But Jesus does not relegate someone, this task to someone else. He just says, I'll do it. And he dresses himself like a servant and he holds their dirty feet in his hands and he washes them. And then, as if that act itself, and I, I just always picture a hush falling over the room as they realize what he's doing. The only one who speaks up, of course, is Peter, who always speaks up. But Jesus then takes that time, that moment, as a teachable moment. In verse 12, he says, do you understand what I have done to you? What this is all about. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Do you see what he does? He says, don't forget, you're right. I am Lord and teacher. I'm the boss here. And you think of me that way, and you're right. I am the boss. But if the boss will do this for you, what will you not do for each other? How can you say, I'm better than the boss? The boss can get down on his knees, but not me. Instead, he says, you need to understand what I've done for you is show you a different way, a different style of leadership. I show you that real leadership serves others. Real leadership is done with a towel, with our sleeves rolled up, us getting down into the work that we're asking other people to do. We don't ask other people to help in the work because we are unwilling. We're not trying to get out of anything. We're not trying to boss anybody around. We're not drunk on our own power. We are merely asking others to help in what we're also willing to do. Real leadership serves. And real leadership is never too good to do for others in whatever sweaty, dirty, tedious form that takes. That's real leadership. I am not too good. I am not above others 
in what I do. The second part of real leadership is that real leadership loves. You might have noticed that back in verse 1 of John 13, it says that Jesus loved his own and loved them to the end. So that what he does when he serves them is out of love. I want to show you this in Philippians chapter 2, though. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that we need to have this attitude because it's the attitude of Jesus. And then it applies to how we interact with each other. Philippians 2 and verse 1, Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe how Jesus emptied himself and came and lowered himself to the point of death in obedience to the Father. But what I want you to see from this, and what Paul is trying to say is, if we see Jesus loving people and coming to meet their needs, then it changes how we treat people. It changes even how we would lead people. Jesus had this incredible focus on other people. And what he did, he did from love. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I came all the way down here for you, not for myself. And you see that in the way Jesus heals and interacts with the people, his great compassion. He sees them, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. The, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so he is, he is stirred up within himself to heal and to help and to teach. That's Jesus. He lowers himself and spins himself for others. Leadership is always best when it is motivated and saturated with love. That's what real leadership looks like. That we care about other people and their needs. And so he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So from that perspective, other people's needs become the focus of the leader. As a leader, you begin to ask the question, am I meeting their needs? Am I helping them? Am I providing for them? How much more can I do for them? How can I do good? And so you see what begins to happen. Leadership and service begin to pull together so that the best tool we can have to lead will be the tool of service where we begin to serve others because we love them and we begin to lead them by serving them. And so they begin to follow by serving and they also learn the great benefits that come from that. Can I just talk to you for a minute about what that feels like for me, looks like for me. Um, I have several roles in which I, I view myself in some ways as a leader. Primarily, I'm a husband and a father. And uh, as, a, as a husband, uh, very, very early on, I began to understand that being married meant that I had to make decisions and had to work through things where I was talking about we and us instead of just me. 
And uh, that, I had some growing pains in that. I'm sure Sarah would love to share those, some, some of those with you. But um, when we had kids, it added a whole new dimension. We have three children. And each one of those children have their own needs, their own flaws, their own strengths. And decisions that I make as a leader in our home have to, have to consider everybody. So we have five things that have to go into every decision. How is this going to affect each one of them? And suddenly, I can't just sit there and say, well, what do I want? What do I like? And now, I, I mean, we also, we have a dog. So suddenly we have a cat. It's kind of against my will. But anyway, I have, to, I have to kind of consider the dog and the cat. You know, if we're going to go out of town, what are we going to do with them? Everything has to be, well, is everybody taken care of? Does everybody have all their needs met? But preaching opened up my eyes to a whole dimension of this that I had never considered before. Because when you preach, you are a minister. You serve. And when you preach, you begin to hear about what people need. Sometimes it's about uh, the struggles that they have. Sometimes it's about issues in their marriage, issues with their children. Sometimes it's about they have a, a child who left the Lord a long time ago, and they pray every day for that child to come home to the Lord. Sometimes it's about uh, an elderly family member that they're taking care of. Sometimes it's about chronic pain. You may not realize it, but there are people in this church that live with chronic pain. Every day they wake up and they hurt. And then there are people who need to grow spiritually. And sometimes the things that I hear say, okay, well, we need some teaching on that. And, and you begin to, and I, I know the elders feel this way too, you begin to take in all these needs. And you hear it. And what you hear is, I can't possibly think that what these people need is for me to boss them around. What they really need is for me to chew them out. What they need is, is service each one of them in a different way. And sometimes that can be overwhelming because all of us have needs and all of us have our weaknesses. What I'm trying to articulate is that it would not do any good for us to try to lead by only asserting ourselves and demanding things from others. That Jesus shows us a better path to leadership by being active and caring and doing and that when my kids see that and my wife sees that and my brethren see that, suddenly they are not bossed around, not resentful, but encouraged that perhaps this is the way of Christ. This is what I see in the gospel and now I see it lived out. And suddenly things are changed. That paradigm of everybody seeking power and everybody seeking to be in charge is turned upside down because now we serve, now we love. I'm suggesting to you that leadership like this is best learned at home. I don't believe that's the only place it can be learned, but I believe it is an essential place in which we have a golden opportunity to teach it to one another, to ourselves, to our children. Parents lead by serving. Especially, let me just throw this part at you, parents show children that I'm not exempt just because I'm the parent. Just because I'm in charge in some ways does not mean that I'm above the law. That if I do wrong or if I break my promises or if I tell a lie or if I get too angry, that I deserve to be called out just as much as anyone else. 
my position does not somehow change the fact that I am subject to God's law. Our discipline in the home should be couched in the deep love that we have for our children and our deep desire for them to do good. We want them to do well. And so we don't just try to control them so that we can have our way, but we try to show them that when we try to lead and follow Christ, we want them to follow Christ as well. I think it would also be helpful. This is just my thought in application. I think it would also be helpful if we could show our families the virtue in highlighting other people who are leading in this way. The thing about servant leadership is it won't get our name up in lights. And yet we will see in our communities, in our church, we will see other people who are following Christ's example. Can we highlight that for them? Can we breed some positivity by saying, here is what following Jesus really should look like? So, if we want others to follow our example, if we want to have influence, it will happen as we lead by serving. Can I ask, how does your home measure up to that? Can you imagine a world with servant leadership? Think about it for just a moment. Can you imagine a world in which parents and children work together to do good? Can you imagine a world where elders are supported as they watch over the flock, as they sometimes make hard decisions? Can you imagine a world where businesses are run by bosses who deeply care about their employees, who really care? Can you imagine a world where politicians are concerned about how their constituents are doing, not because they want to get reelected, but because they just care? Can you see what a blessing it would be in every sphere of our lives to eliminate the spirit of competition and ambition that says, I just want to be able to be in charge? Can you see where Jesus wants to take us? That's what he is saying. Not so among you but the greatest shall be a servant. So let's start that process in our homes. Yes, let's lead, but let's lead by serving. Would you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we are so thankful to you. You've given us this time and you've given us this word and you've challenged us with these thoughts about how we can be better servants to you and to one another. Father, we ask for your help in applying these things. We ask for your help as parents. We ask for your help as children. We ask for your help as brothers and sisters that we'll not turn our eyes away from the needs around us, that we'll not solely focus on what we want and what we need, but that we'll be willing to spend and be spent for one another. I pray that you'll help us, Father, not to look out for our own interests, but for the interests of others, and help us to have the mind of Christ that comes not to be served, but to serve. Help us, Father, to rejoice in being able to give instead of getting. Help us, Father, to rejoice in being able to do good Open our eyes, fathers, to all that you're doing for us in the world. Help us to see how you want us to show others your love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond. This is the time in our service where we offer the invitation for those who have a need of a spiritual nature and you want to let the congregation know about that, whether that's some problem in your life, some sin that you've committed, something you need prayer and help for. 
this is the time for you to let us know about that. If you're not a disciple of Jesus and you want to be baptized into Christ, you're ready to make that commitment, this is the time. Please just come to the front let us know as we stand and sing to encourage you.